Hey, listeners, you know we've got a Patreon, right? Where supporters get early access to all our podcasts, bonus episodes, discounts on merch, and access to the Feminist Frequency Discord? Well, now you do. Get all this fun stuff while supporting our show at patreon.com slash femfreak. That's F-E-M-F-R-E-Q. I don't want somebody who's willing. I want someone who I can kind of torture until she desires me. How many men have it in their playbook just to wear a woman down? (laughs) Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined today by a woman who wants to make sure you're following Sam Neill on Instagram. What's up, Ebony Adams? What's up? And that's legit. Like, follow Sam Neill on Instagram. He's amazing. He's so cute. (laughs) Great. Like, I'm being sincere about this. Anyway, Google him. I don't remember his handle. Two Paddocks. That's what it is. It's Two Paddocks because it's Two Paddocks Winery. Whatever. Moving on. This is the quality <laughs> podcast that everybody is expecting. Listen, if Feminist people have already... Radio. Yeah. If this is your first time listening, I apologize. If it's not, you knew what was coming. It's true. All right. Ebony, why don't you tell us what we're talking about today? Okay, so we are kicking off a month of episodes dedicated to the work of pioneering female directors. And to get us started, we're going to be talking about Jane Campion's 1993 occasionally racist, occasionally, masterpiece, The Piano. She came to a strange land in search of a new life. We can't leave the piano. But there are too few of us here to carry it now. She came to a husband she had never met. And was time, I'm sure she would become affectionate. And discovered a passion that would change her world forever. The film was a huge commercial and a critical success, winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes and three Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actor, excuse me, Best Supporting Actress for 11-year-old Anna Paquin. The piano is the story of Ada, a mute Scottish woman who is married off for her father to a man in New Zealand, And the film encourages us to savor the profound richness of Ada's thoughts and desires, as well as the beauty of her relationship with her young daughter. Ada's piano, her most prized possession, makes the arduous journey by ship with her across the world. But its journey from the beach to her new home, inland, will open her to electrifying new intimacies. Joining us to talk about the film, about maybe, I don't know, her time down under, and also to talk about a full frontal Harvey Keitel is writer, <laughs> raconteur, and podcast host, Kat Spada. Welcome. I always want raconteur to be in my bio, so thank you for that. And You're welcome. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the occasional racism, and uh, I did a little Jane Campion kind of Rewatching uh, in anticipation mm-hmm. of this recording, and yeah, it's there uh, across yeah. quite a few of those films of hers. But um, yeah, I've never seen in the cut, but I I've heard that it is the same. Let me tell you, in the cut, <laughs> it's been. <laughs> I watched in the cut last night. It's on Netflix. If you feel like seeing Mark Ruffalo full frontal, um, and I don't not want to see Mark Ruffalo full frontal. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's a lot of slurs, and mm-hmm. it's a, a something I'm looking forward to talking about. It's one of those where you're like, am I into the sexuality of this? It. I don't think I should be into the sexuality of this. Oh, um, yeah. Let's get yeah. into it. Okay. <laughs> so had both of y'all seen this film before? No. Yeah, okay. I, I, I think... 
I think I've only seen Power of the Dog from Jane Campion. Oh, interesting. Okay. And did you yeah. enjoy Power of the Dog? Yeah. Overall, for sure. I mean, it's it's stunning. Um, and the performances mm-hmm. are amazing. It's an incredible film. It she better fucking win all the awards for it. And remind me, have you seen Top of the Lake? I thought we had talked about Top of the Lake. Wait, is that Jane Campion? Yeah. Oh fuck. I love Top of the Lake. Yeah. Never mind. Okay. I'm taking back my <laughs> Y'all um not I knowing just, things. I don't want to apologize for her because she has nothing to apologize for, but Anita is going on like 30 seconds of sleep. And so <laughs> she is guaranteed to be even more reckless and just Y'all, more feel- like tutti fruity in this week's episode. <laughs> okay. I'm looking forward to uh, well, it. Let's just let's just let's just let's just get let's just get this out there. I am at a conference in Vegas, and as happens, I was up until 5 a.m. and smoking I slept cigars. two hours before recording this. Smoking cigars. I learned how to play craps. I I won Ooh. a lot of money from other people. Like I didn't put any of my money down. My friends just kept giving me their money, and then I like made them a bunch of money and gave it all back to them. Okay, that's like, where your plan broke down. Okay, I, know, that's I was like, I should have just kept the fucking winnings yeah. of that yeah. shit. They they're all they're we'll all learn. wealthy game developers. <laughs> Anyways, so I'm um, all for good reasons, but I'm so out of it right now. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm recording agree this to in disagree a hotel room. With, well, because with, there's sex art. Look at, do you all see this sex art behind me? I oh yeah, do. should we should we screenshot it's very it for shape the of water? <laughs> oh brother, I hope that you ask for the shape of water suite. Another story about a mute woman. Yeah, listen, yes. making connections. That's, That's why we get guests hate. on this show. <laughs> Uh, we got to upgrade. We just upgrade the whole fucking cast, all of us. <laughs> Pretty much. We all need to rotate out. Okay, so Anita, tell us about your reactions to this. Um, Yo. Do you okay, remember? I gotta... Yeah, I barely. But I, yes, no, I remember. I Okay, so <laughs> as listeners know, I go through depressive spells and I watch like TV that feels against my values. Um, So I've been watching Peaky Blinders and... Not a half. So hit us up with a bonus for that shit for that conversation. But in Peaky Blinders, especially the second season, I think when I watch this, there is a lot of, um, you know, degradation of women, coercion of women, like assault, uh, you know, it like manipulating women, men manipulating women to, to, to get what they want, which is like forcing them into situations where they have to have sex in order to, you know, not have their child murdered or whatever it is. And so watching that show and then watching this movie kind of interwoven was too much for me. Like it was just too much of that kind of energy in the time period. So that I think colored this a little bit. I wanted to, I wanted to give this movie the benefit of the doubt. Um, And I, I'm really curious. I mean, Ebony, I know you've seen this before and you suggested this one. Like, I don't want to jump right to the end, but like, I really am so troubled by the, like the romance piece of this movie. And is that, is there like a, is there a commentary there uh, that I'm missing? Or is it just like super fucking troubling because this movie was made in the nineties and it feels like a nineties movie, Mm -hmm. you know? This film is, I mean, who Holly Hunter's performance. In fact, I would say everyone's performance, like Anna Paquin, 11-year-old getting that Best Supporting Actress award, deserves it, love it. Her adorable little voice. But I mean, it's wildly problematic on so many levels, which is really frustrating as a viewer because you recognize that at the same time that you're horrified by what's happening on screen, 
the the technical mastery of the film, the the craft that's being displayed, is very seductive, right? So I saw this film first. I'm you know older than everybody here, so I first saw this film when I think I was 17 or 18, and I have I had very little memory of the film. Um, except remembering that I was not happy to see a full frontal Harvey Keitel and that I was horrified <laughs> by the fact that they ended up together. That has not changed in the, uh, you know, intervening 90 years since <laughs> I first saw the film. Although I was less, you know, concerned about seeing full frontal Harvey Keitel this time around because I'm much older. So I'm like, oh, he looks fine. You know, whereas when I was 18, I was like, who is this old toad? Like, how could she possibly <laughs> so for- be into this? For listeners who don't aren't going to watch the movie or aren't familiar and need a refresher, um, what we're referencing is that, um, and I agree, the performances are fucking sensational in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the the prote- the main protagonist who is mute um, goes to you know whatever she she is being forced to play the piano for a neighbor who really just wants to fuck her, and he like forces her and like whittles down oh. her. Um, I don't know, dry, like he whittles down her, her stamina and like, is basically like, we will trade um, sexual favors until you pay and you pay enough to get your beloved piano back. And, um, and that's coercion, right? Like it, that's pre- like, it's assault. It, it's abuse. It's predatory. It's like, it's really, and it's a, and co- deeply uncomfortable. And then at some point in the movie near the end, she falls in love with him. And so this whole narrative around like the no, 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 yes trope of um, you just pursue them, just pursue them. Like, you know, it's very gendered, right? It's men pursuing women um, over and over and over again. They keep saying no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden it's like this fucking romantic, like tragic story. But it's it's of a piece with all of the transactional relationships in the film, right? So Ada, the protagonist, is initially like, you know, sold into marriage to this man that she's never met halfway across the world. Um, The piano, her beloved piano, which is left on the beach because her husband, played by Sam Neill, um, says, I don't have space in my tiny home for it. Also, I didn't bring enough, you know, Maori men to cart all your shit back to my house. So Harvey Keitel is able to gain ownership of the piano by, you know, bartering it, hit 80, I think 80 acres of land, um, a way that Sam Neill has been coveting. So it's of a piece, like everything in the film is traded for something else, right? So affection for something, you know, physical, um, different forms of um, intimacy are traded for other forms of intimacy. But yeah, it's it's so troubling because at, at no point is Ada truly able to exercise any um like real autonomy. And yet the film does want to suggest that she has ultimately made a choice in the end that demonstrates this strong will, the strong will of hers that she says she's almost afraid of. And it's like, it's, she lives in a culture and she lives in a time in which she really has, she has no power. And so she is able to, um, to grab and hold on to things in the only way available to her. But you do want to say like, no, just because, you know, <laughs> Harvey Keitel is George Payne's like seems to see you, the real you more than, you know, Sam Neill's character. doesn't mean that he's like the romantic hero that you want him to be, you know, like at no point is she, was she given like true choice. 
Well, and it's a strong will that's like mythologized as if it's almost a superpower that she has or like a super villainy that she could wield. And it's I like that, you know, a lot of it we have the narration that's that's from Holly Hunter. And then we have kind of Anna Paquin's uh, telling of her mother in the way that like she's Mm -hmm. been told what her mother's life is. So the. The notion is that she has this strong will that she's able to impose on people and, you know, possibly this is what happened to her first husband or or unclear if she was even married before. And possibly she wields this power over Sam Neill later on. Um, and I I think that obviously, like, I'm not looking for movies that have no nuance in them. Like, it's not mm-hmm. something where I'm expecting the story to be like, no, 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 no. Give me a version in which she has all the agency and is able to, like, do things the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially re-watching this movie, because I'd watched it as a kid, and I had a, a totally... <laughs> it's been fucking bonkers. You know, I was, like, for all the... I did have, like, fairly overprotective parents in terms of, like... Uh, curfew and stuff like that and sending me to all girls school but i could watch anything um they would take me to the movies to see anything if they wanted Mm -hmm. to go see the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert they would take me with them and we would talk about it so i always appreciated that they were like you're smart enough to understand that movies are like movies and we can talk about it Mm Itu Mama Tambien was one that my dad had to turn off like five minutes in. But um, <laughs> um, so I remember watching this as a kid and it sort of, you know, being myself of the mindset of the 90s and not having a great concept of what it is to have agency or what it is to like uh, just to navigate like sexiness and sexuality. So I remembered it being a movie that was like this sort of erotic awakening of this woman. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's kind of how I always remembered it. So then rewatching it as an adult, it's just, like, I feel like a lot of movies from the 90s that we remember as these, like, transgressive sort of feminist stories, it's like they're giving us just enough. They're giving us mm-hmm. just enough, but that that makes it even more disappointing because yeah. she just like every step of the way she's between some impossible choice. So right. you can't quite like, I want to look at it and say like, okay, it's a transactional sexual relationship and she's getting something out of it and he's getting something out of it. But it never lets it be as simple as that because ultimately these men want love. They want her adoration and like, right. they want more than her sex and, you know, physical presence. They want her servitude. And that's the thing that, yeah, I guess that's the whole thing, Anita, at the end. Like, is her choice the decision that she actively makes to kill herself and then the decision that she actively makes to back out of that? Like, well, I guess I'm going to have a life and it's going to be a fine life and I'll get to be with my daughter and my piano and this guy. Like, <laughs> okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, crucially, Ada, who, you know, is but voluntarily mute. She says she has not spoken since she was six. And, you know, no one knows why that is, but there seems to be no like medical reason, physical medical reason why she no longer speaks. At the end of the movie has, what, decided now that she does want to speak and is practicing her speech. And so 
the suggestion that it is through the love of this man that she's now with. You mean Harvey Keitel's Dingle Dangle is making her want to Fucking talk? magical, man. Fucking magic. Like, you get that. And I, I should say, as troubling as their relationship is in the film, Harvey Keitel and Holly Hunter have bonkers intense chemistry. Yeah. You know, which is one of the reasons why it's so frustrating because you're like, I would love to surrender to this. The way that they hold each other, this seeming like magnetism as they stand just millimeters apart from each other, you know, smelling each other and leaning in, you know, to to rub each other's skin gently. Like I wanted to want it, but Harvey <laughs> makes this after like, you know, um, trading keys on the piano you know, one at a time to Ada for allowing her what, or allowing him to look up under her skirt, allowing him to uh, touch her bare arm, et cetera. At some point he's like, I can't do this anymore. It's making you a whore and making me wretched. And I'm like, you just figure that out, George. (laughs) Like that's been the thing from the beginning, you know, like you set the terms up for this. Well, and that's the whole thing is like, Women are never, and I do think this is like common, this is a common trope for Jane Campion, which is like women, men have an idea of what they want their woman to be or Mm -hmm. what they want a woman or all women to be. And women are more than that thing. So that's where, like, that is the source of the drama. And I think that that's one of the most interesting things about her movies, um, I I had watched Sweetie before and I watched it again recently. And that's another one where I remembered it being like she has this self-destructive sister named Sweetie who shows up and she's, I don't know, a size 12 and she's got drama. And then watching it again, I was like, she's a victim of abuse. <laughs> like, yeah. Hello, this isn't something I picked up at all when I was younger watching this movie. So like, To have Ada as a character that, you know, the husband wants her to be meek and submissive as a wife, but also as a sexual plaything, and she won't give him either of those things. And then Baines wants her to both be the, like, you know, the untouchable, uh, Mm -hmm. prim wife that he's being transgressive by having this relationship with, but then he also wants her to be, to love him. And it's like, you don't get to have it all of these different ways. Um, Which is interesting narratively to create stories about that dynamic that you just described. And that is what I think this film would have been if it ended differently. Right. Like it, it's like, I'm just, I'm very curious what like she as the director wanted to tell like I don't I don't really know what the the whatever intent I we're not going to get into that intent doesn't matter it's what's on screen but it did as I was watching it um because I really did want to give her the benefit of the doubt of like why what is this like are you is this a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing mm-hmm. like it didn't feel like that it felt like a love story mm-hmm. right like it, it it didn't feel like oh well she had been um, whittled down and then finally kind of like learned to love him over time because it was a better alternative than the one that she was stuck in. And he, you know, cause he's violent and cuts off her finger and all that kind of stuff that the husband does. Um, but it, it felt sincerely like, Oh my God, he's the love of my life. And I didn't realize it. 
And that bit is the, is what I was like, what are you saying? Like, what it, what are you trying to get across here? Because there is so much, I, I feel like interesting complexity to these relationships and the dynamics of these relationships and the struggles of women in this time being property. Just, like, they bartered property literally for this piano and they were bartering property for access to her as property, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's, it's not... That's not a hard note for to understand. So I, I don't know. I'm like, really like, what are you doing, Jane? What's going on? I, yeah, you know, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kat. I do think that this is a root intent, as you said. I think this story is supposed to be a fable. Uh, so that is something that I'm still figuring out when I think about the movie. But there's the sequence when they do the silhouette play right. uh, play acting for everyone and it's like of course it's a similar story to the whole arc of the piano and i think there's even a disfigurement that takes place in this story um and i think that's partially the role of anna paquin's character is to like be the the childlike greek chorus for us as we're watching a a fable roll out now, I don't know much about this, but I do know that the original script ended with her drowning. And this is a Miramax movie. Who knows? Studio notes. Yeah, yeah. that was that was fully studio notes. Yeah. <laughs> but like that to me makes the ending feel like it's okay, this is the fairy tale coda that didn't really happen. This isn't how the story really happened. What really happened is she killed herself. But here's your little fairy tale moment at the end. That makes it seem like everyone was happily, you know, lived happily ever after. Um, And that's just my reading. Like, I choose to believe that she dies at the end of this movie and that what's what's left is the could be the way her daughter remembers the story or likes to think of telling the story later on. Um, But that's yeah, it it, could be a false. Yeah, I really I the fable thing tracks for me because I kept I kept being like, this feels like a fairy tale. Yeah. Like the whole thing, the whole story to me feels like, you know, not Disney fairy tale, but like the legit fucking shape of water goes right. Fairy yeah. tale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, fuck that movie. But yeah. Um, <laughs> whatever. No, I, I agree. I, I Anita, because watch I feel- shape of water to see if I actually still hate it because I'm so ag- I'm so aggressive about my dislike of that movie that I'm like, I don't know if it's more if it warrants that much of my aggression. It does. It's crap. Anyways. Life is too short to watch that movie twice. <laughs> Right. Thank you. (laughs) But no, I I love what you're saying, Kat, about ways of reading this film as a fable. Because, yeah, I mean, there are these fantastical elements that point at that, right? So there's that one scene, and I'm blanking on precisely when it happens, but it sort of cuts to this like little animated, you know, scene of a figure on fire, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, There's all of those scenes of the forest in which the lighting is sort of, you know, dark and atmospheric in a very like Grimm's fairy tale sort of way. So yeah, I I appreciate that way of seeing it. But, you know, it's interesting, Anita, you were talking about wanting to give the film and or Jane Campion the benefit of the doubt here. And I, I'm finding myself doing the same thing, knowing that if this were a male director, I would have no trouble saying, yo, there's some fucked up shit happening mm-hmm. here. And I don't trust that um, th- the horrific reading that is most apparent to me is actually being, you know, subverted in some way by something that I did not catch, right? And so, like, let's talk about 
depictions of the Maori in this film, mm. right? Because I had no memory of this from the first time I watched this film. So I'm watching it last night, rather rewatching it last night. And I'm just like, what the fuck is happening here? The ways in which they are presented as childlike, mischievous, um, little better than pieces of the landscape, you know, um, is so troubling. The way that they are meant to stand in or meant to like demonstrate either, you know, um, George's ability to what assimilate into another culture, you know, or the way that they are used purely as, um, as, you know, physical labor, like as tools almost is horrific. And I kept waiting for there to be more, for there to be any sense that any of the Maori can any of the indigenous people of this land, you know, a had, you know, some sort of like higher faculty or that they were three-dimensional characters themselves. And at no point do we get that at no point in this film. Yeah. Are they anything more than, you know, very, very supporting wallpaper. And there is this kind of, there's a scene where um, they're trying to trade for more land and mm-hmm. it's like kind of, you know, we, we've recognized the story of like, this is obviously a false equivalency of like your native land and my, you know, store of guns that I'm going to trade you for right. it. Um, which is, I think that scene's included in there because that's the whole thing with Baines and Ada is like mm-hmm. this false equivalency that they're having some sort of transactional, um, you know, trade. And well, okay. We said it was one key for me to just sit and watch you, but how about if it's four keys and this time, you know, I get to, I don't know, you know. Stick rape. my finger in the hole in your drawers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, so there's, you know, it, I guess like we're supposed to feel that these people are in the same kind of difficult position that Ada's in. But I think when you look at the craft of the movie and, you know, I'm curious, I really don't know, like this was her original story right jane campion wrote this i believe so she got original screenplay mm-hmm. um uh oscar for it like this story is what an oscar yeah screen, three screenplay yeah. and then the uh lead and supporting actress um yeah sorry the screenplay okay sorry yeah so i i, I watched um uh, <laughs> actually watched holly hunter and anna paquin's thank you speeches and a, Holly Hunter was also nominated for Supporting Actress this year for The Firm. So it's mm. very cute to see how thrilled she is to lose to Anna Paquin mm. um, before she gets her Oscar. But when she thanks, uh, when she gives her speech for lead actress, she thanks Harvey and Bob Weinstein. And it's like, there was a f- turn of phrase that was like, for your tremendous conviction about this movie like something it's not quite that but i remembered like getting the sense that she was saying like y'all were very passionate about this movie thanks (laughs) (laughs) what does that mean like were they like "Mm." like thank you for making this documentary about our lives yeah like actually we're gonna need you to like show more like butt in this movie like i don't know (laughs) i don't know their how they're they were working with it but just thinking about jane campion deciding to tell this story and making it very, very stark that there are these, like, British prim and proper. I mean, she is so slicked back and has mm. always a black dress that is extremely 
tight and like there's no there's no kind of humanity to her just like when she shows up on the on the beach and then there's what i kind of see as like an old fashioned savage portrayal of the maori like the yeah. the fact that baines has assimilated enough to like get traditional facial tattoos i don't know what we're supposed to read by that like are, we're just supposed to think that he's acceptable because he's not maori but he's he's rugged and native because he's thrown his lot in with them and it it just i think it would be i would hope it'd be handled differently today because there it's too facile it's not really giving me enough um even when they show up at that at that uh story time they're somehow like they it seems that the Maori men who show up there believe that an actual act of violence has taken place in the silhouette story. It, right. And they're like, it was, it was very like, Oh, you are saying that they're dumb and yeah. don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was, I felt, I found that scene incredibly patronizing. Yeah, exactly. It was like, yeah, uh, it was just weird. Along with, yeah. Along with that one, when Ada um, is sort of first introduced to, the Maori who are around, um, is his name Alistair? Sam Neill's character, you know, around his homestead. And one of the women takes her shawl, like slowly slides it off her and takes it and is laughing and sort of like showing off with it and then passes it on to, you know, another one of those women. Um, it is, again, yeah, there's, there's just really troubling con contrasting going on between like civilization and civilized people as it is embodied in Ada, George, the white people in mm -hmm. this film, and the masses of the Maori, who also, if you'll notice, like don't adhere to no the same sort of notions of personal space. So they're always really crowded around each other and always really crowded around the white people. And they they're much taller, you know, and larger. And you do get this sense of of claustrophobia and the sort of like, you know, creeping savagery. So Sam Neill's, you know, home is right in the middle of this, this wooded area. And it looks like it would take no time at all for this land to reclaim, mm. you know, the space that he is currently occupying. I think, you know, uh, George, Harvey Keitel's character, his, his facial tattoos and his facility with the local language is meant to underline the fact that he can communicate in whatever language is appropriate, right? So mm. he also understands Ada without her having to speak, but he is able to communicate in her language of of touch mm -hmm. and glances and sight in a way that Sam Neill's character cannot, he, you know, like tries to enforce his, you know, linguistic infrastructure upon her. Um, so yeah, but like Harvey Keitel, as you know, you were pointing out, Kat, He's he's rugged. He's very manly. Um, he's got just enough of that hint of savagery to be like sexy, right? But crucially, still retains enough innate civilization mm. that at the end of the film, when we see him, what in a small town, and you know Nelson, you know he's now dressed differently. He's now cleaned up, and it's this seems just as right. He is just as at home in these white spaces as he was um, in, in the space he occupied yeah. before in a way that Sam Neill is never truly comfortable um, at his homestead. 
you know, with those people in that space. There's also something around the whole like going native thing that's happening mm-hmm. in this movie and that he he's committed like he's made a choice to be like, this is my life and these are the people I feel, you know, in the movie, whatever this it's fucked up, but that I feel um, a, a, akin to a kindredness mm-hmm. to and I, I want this life and that that's all that's all thrown away because of Ada. Right. Where right. he's where he's just like, I don't that, like it wasn't. Like he got fucking facial tattoos and then he's like, well, because I'm going to go bone this chick now. Like <laughs> it's done, so in- done with that life. Right. It's so interesting because remember also he apparently is married. He's got a wife back in England. Yeah. Don't know what's going on right. with her. Right. She, but yeah. like at the beginning of his um, his time with Ada, you get the sense that this is a man who is profoundly lonely and touch starved. Right. And so. But lest you feel sympathy for this dude, I'm like, there are women around you, but clearly you do not see them as women worthy of desire. Right. Even though you have clearly like assimilated to a certain level into their community, you know? Like if you just wanted to get married, there's this group of women who are telling you like, oh, you know, you've got a great body. I don't want your saucy snake or whatever. <laughs> you know, like clearly you could have had any number of willing partners among that community, Godspeed, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't until Ada came along, this white woman came along that you were like, aha. Well, I think it is that that notion of like, oh, she has to be a challenge. Like mm-hmm. that woman who is sort of flirting with him. I, I get the sense, like they probably were lovers or, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he, I'm sure he slept with plenty of women here. There's, I don't know, there's a domestic staff, you know, that are there that he could have a relationship with because he's not like a... I don't know, a gentry man or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he could have a um a societally acceptable marriage if he mm-hmm. wanted to. But what both of those men want from Ada is that she's like this tough nut to crack. And, right. you know, she will be made submissive by her husband. Like that's his ultimate mm-hmm. desire. And Baines is like, no, no, she I don't want somebody who's willing. I want someone who I can kind of torture until she desires me and you know yeah as you i think somebody said stockholm syndrome it could be that Mm. type of story or it's just uh i mean how many men have it in their playbook just wear a woman down you know like it's pretty it's tale as old as time i'm telling you this is how you get a woman you just show up naked to your piano lesson (laughs) eventually she will be into it and oh, it'll boy. teach her daughter I, some unfortunate lessons. Oh, my God. <laughs> I kept it. So, like, given the circumstances of the oppression of women in this time and the ownership and all of that, I was like, you know, they're out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Why can't they just have an open relationship? Like, just be like, yeah, cool. You sleep here and you can go fuck that guy next door. It'll be fine. This would solve all the problems. No movie. If, only, if only they had listened to you, Anita. She would have been able saying. to keep that finger. Um, um, th- the fucking kid, this <laughs> so fucking good. daughter, who so good. I like it was, you know. There's a part of me, you know. I I feel at, like movies have conflict, and sometimes villains do things, and you're like, no, don't do that. Why would you do that? What's wrong with you? But then I was like, fucking kids suck, man. <laughs> they totally would, and I I don't think the movie gives us enough to show her turning, like. 
it was, we had to really, as the audience, give a lot to watch that sort of turncoatness that mm-hmm. happened. But because she's, the daughter starts by being like, I'm not going to call him Papa or yeah. whatever she says, right? And then all of a sudden she's like, like calling out her mom and like ratting on her and not listening to her. And like, is it like, is like deeply, um, whatever the not sexual version of in love uh, you know what i mean yeah. like she's mm-hmm. she's very like a, f- a familiar and and caring of the affection of this man who she now thinks of as a father so they didn't really show that we had to like we had to add a little bit of that i think um uh to our viewing of it um but i kept thinking it so so she fucks up and doesn't do what her mom asks her to do and she her mom loses a finger and i was like that kid is going to be traumatized for the rest of her fucking life. Like she's, she's never, ever, ever going to be able to like, like, I don't know, make a choice again in the future. Mm. Like, I don't like, can you imagine watching that happen and being like, this was my fault. And could you imagine being the mother and being like, this was your fault. You little shit. (laughs) (laughs) This is why the good Lord didn't give me any children of my own. Cause I would hold that over my kid. Every time they acted (laughs) up, I would just point to, you know, my missing finger and be like, children, childrenless people, (laughs) you know, I, I I don't, I I don't, you don't have kids, right? Not yet. You can't, you can't represent the parent population in this podcast. Um, you know, whatever. They talk about how, like, you have kids and then you fucking love them and it's like, blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> so then and then you fucking love shit, them. And they're like angels or whatever. Sounds fake. But I'm just like, man, I feel like that would be like a fucking test as a parent to be like, maybe I can still love you after this. Maybe yeah, I can I mean, still care about you. Fucking traumatizing. How about then seeing your mom, like, purposefully step into the rope that's going to toss yeah. her overboard with her beloved piano. Like my mom would rather commit suicide than be on this boat one more minute with me and <laughs> my well, new dad. Well, no, I thought that was done so elegantly um, because w- the way it was filmed, the way it happened is, you know, nobody would know that she did that. Right. Like she was just like the calculations of if I move my foot here right now, I, this could happen. And I just, I really, I thought that was beautiful. And, and Kat, I'm with you. I wish it ended there. Like Mm -hmm, that's the tragedy. Like that's the tragic ending of all of the things that I valued. Uh, My piano, which was like the most, the thing she valued the most in the world, maybe other than her kid, I don't know. Um, And, and life. And she's like, we're done. We're done with all of this. And I'm going to go down with this thing. Right. So I, I thought that was, I thought that was lovely. But yeah, I mean, watching your mother drown would be a, traumatizing well and it's you know or anyone she's about as precocious as they come but like that Mm -hmm. doesn't she kind of came by that also because of the way that her mother has raised her so she she has been forced into having like an adult kind of responsibility in her life they because and, and i don't know what we're supposed to make of ada's willful mutism or sele- or ch- choice you know especially if it was made as a child was that as a as a response to abuse like i don't know but her daughter is in the position of being her interpreter and that places her not as a child but as like somebody who then has to be responsible for her mother so the whole like i i really had so much sympathy for her when she goes to Sam Neill because her mother should not have asked her to deliver her love note. 
in the first place. Like that was very inappropriate. Like, yeah, I'm going to put my child in the position to have to like take this, you know, she's been watching me through the slats with this guy and then, you know, making out with trees because she doesn't know what up from down. And now I'm going to put her in this position. And that's, you know, that's where I'm kind of lose Ada's uh, desire or like rationale because it's like what why would I, you put your child at risk like this right totally but also in in movie conflict world it's fucking brilliant like yeah. it's a brilliant storytelling choice of like i'm i'm getting around the rules of my imprisonment uh, and the only way i can do that is to exploit my child and i'm in a friend an emotional frenzy so this is this is all i got yeah and so i think i think narratively that's really cool like it really smart to show the restriction that ada has and the you know um <clears throat> the fa- the falling apartness of like you know when you have heightened um, like romantic feelings you're not being rational yeah right? like there's nothing rational about being when in your love. captor and so I- has tried to you know, a, like literally locks you. you in the house. And yeah. he's like molesting yeah. her yeah. while she's feverish with, you know, from having been dis- yeah. disfigured. Then it's like, yeah, I guess my one ally is Baines. So maybe this is like my, this is my safety net here. Which, okay, <clears throat> would have been, I think, a more, a story more in line with the values I would like to see if if her affection or her attachment to Baines came after the mm. like physical abuse, the rape, the assault, like all of that stuff where she's like, oh, this is all I have on this island. Mm-hmm. This is all, or this area, wherever there, <clears throat> this is all that I have. But it was that, all of that was a response to her, you know, having feelings for this guy or whatever. So, um, yeah, although I, part of my complicated um, response to this film is that, you do get the sense that as touch starved as Baines is, Ada is equally desperate to explore herself and be explored sensually, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, you do get the sense that whatever, you know, the, the, you know, realities of the relationship that brought her daughter into the world, that she was a, absolutely willing participant in it, you know? And that, you know, part of what she appreciates about Baines is the the freedom to express how much she likes to touch and be touched, you know? And so it is a very comforting lie if you are in that position to then tell yourself that, um, that he is a more safe option mm-hmm. to explore those desires versus the person who is trying to... Um, to inflict his desires upon you. And I think, you know, it's important that when we see her touching Sam Neill, he's so uncomfortable yes. with it. He's so uncomfortable. He's not a willing, uh, you know, receiver of her touch. He is, he wants to be the one, you know, on top, <laughs> literally yeah. and figuratively. Um, but any sense from her that that she might be taking pleasure in it, he can't bear it. He cannot bear it. I see that a lot in her movies now that I've like recently rewatched a few of them is that play with when a woman is driving this, the intimacy 
mm-hmm. and how deeply uncomfortable that can make some men. And that's like, I mean, really to get into the the choreography of that scene, like Sam Neill is prone and she's touching his butt and his legs and back in a way that like a man is supposed to touch a woman. A woman isn't supposed to touch a man like that. Like there is really a a subversion. I think even if you look at probably just a lot of sex scenes that would have been in movies at this time, you might not have seen that kind of um that kind of like power play in mm-hmm. in a sex scene that doesn't have to be about power. It is just about like she's trying to find some moment of intimacy and that's how she's going to approach like sexual pleasure with with this husband of hers but he just can't tolerate it and that's not that's not what a woman is or does to him right um which is you know then by contrast the scene when he's chasing her and it is like a horror movie i mean you were saying like the brothers grim like she's Mm -hmm. trapped in brambles and branches and it's you think it's about to be like a axe murderer is is on the on the loose. Um, mm-hmm. But it's seen as so threatening when she's literally just touching his skin and he's right. vulnerable. Yeah. I, that's a really, I didn't, I didn't read the scene that with that level of um, analysis and that makes so much sense. And it explains why that scene feels there's like in all of the, in all of the sort of touching of this movie, there is such a, sensualness and such a like you know and uh, i don't know how to say this without being gender essentialist at the moment but there is something about like this is the lens of a female film director Mm -hmm. making like showing sex scenes um and the complexity of emotion in sex scenes it's not just like two people fucking to cement a relationship or whatever i think there's something interesting about that framing and that perspective and and what how how you use the camera and the editing and the the sh- the positioning of people's bodies to tell a different type of sexual to show a different type of sexual experience. Yeah. And I think there's something that isn't I don't see it explored a lot when men are telling the stories which is just like that physicality is a part of intimacy and that that doesn't necessarily even have to be sexual like it's part of sexuality but you know even the way that she's affectionate with her daughter you know that's something like a that a parent would rub their child's back and that they would fall asleep together in a strange place you know like that i think is a kind of affection and intimacy that you don't often see portrayed but it's very important to these characters and their relationship and their survival in this place having you know having now watched in the cut so if you ever have questions about in the cut i guess i'm your girl um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the central relationship in that is between sisters. It's Meg Ryan and Jennifer Jason Lee. And there's a lot of scenes of them in a sweaty New York summer, just like in their bras in the apartment, um, kind of just, you know, being lounging or on top of each other, you know, and being affectionate in a way that I think is is true to a lot of sister relationships. And I was like, gosh, you know, you know I don't see that. You never see this in a movie um, because it's not that's not the type of person who's usually telling the story. Um, yeah. So very, you know, I'm going to to bring it to Power of the Dog. Like maybe these are a lot of false equivalencies. I know that a lot of people were like, <laughs> Power of the Dog, 
nice use of a piano, Ms. Campion. And she was like, that was not, that's just the story. Like it's not, right. I don't have a thing for pianos. Um, but there, there are a couple of- No, her dining room table at home is a carved piano that just <laughs> right. put in. Yeah. There's a couple of great scenes between um, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons where she's trying to dance with him or sort of be sweet and romantic with him in a way that he's not, like he loves her and he sort of adores her, mm-hmm. but he's not receptive to. And it's interesting. I mean, both of these being like period pieces to see that kind of like stoic masculinity and like, you know, fellas, is it gay to let your wife touch you affectionately? <laughs> like, you <know>? right. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's just kind of interesting to have seen that, especially with a real life, you know, couple playing that those yeah. roles. Mm-hmm. Um um, I'm going to pre- be preemptively defensive when I talked about gender essentialism and just clarify that like, um, I, I like, I don't even know why I said that. Cause I think it's perfectly fine to have said what I said. I think that we are socialized in the way that we see media and we've seen so many male filmmakers present media and sexuality, sorry, present their media and sexuality in a very particular lens because of all of the socialization that comes with masculinity and sex and the attachments to all of that. And so there is a refreshingness that comes from a different perspective of that. So I don't know if that was necessary to add. So I felt insecure. Well, and I'll add a couple of additional footnotes, you know, to think of Harvey Keitel. I mean, why Ebony, were you so dismayed about the the prospect of seeing him naked in this movie? Is it because to me, the pre- predominant image of Harvey Keitel is in Taxi Driver as yeah. this uh, horrifying man. You were a bad lieutenant or something? I was <laughs> like, not into it. But like, this what guy a, is not safe. What a tale of, you know, how, how we are used to seeing girls and men on screen. And yeah. um, also, I was thinking about the, uh, the kind of Maori assimilation. Uh, did you all see the movie Hunt for the Wilder People? I have not seen that yet. So I ta- want to. It's Taika Waititi and it's right. Sam Neill as this sort of a little bit of a Baines character, maybe like not quite, but he, you know, and it's in the modern era. But I believe in that movie, his wife is Maori, and he has a, a generational familiarity with living off the land and like being in this uh, type of community. And there is a there's a little bit of it's, I don't know, this is like the most damned by faint praise (laughs) type of (laughs) saying, but it's just nice to see. It's nice to see like (laughs) 30 years later. I'm like, oh, Sam Neill. We like Sam Neill, don't we? We do. We do. (laughs) Follow him on Instagram, everybody. Sam Neill also plays a misogynist piece of shit in Peaky Blinders. So there's another overlap in my my life. Oh, that's Um, right. right. It's the same character. yeah, um, it, it's like the same kind of uh, energy that I at the beginning of this podcast, I was like, I can't deal with this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's him <laughs> doing it again. Cool, yeah. Sam Neill. Cool. Um, one thing, this isn't important or anything, but you were talking about there's a, the connection between or the chemistry between Harvey Keitel and um, Helen Holly. Holly Hunter. Yes. <laughs> I always I get her confused with Helen Hunt or all the time. I can't. OK, HH. It's great. Let's do that. Um, and I think, and that there's a seductiveness to that chemistry where you want to fall into that, like they see each other and they, this and they, that 
when you see characters and when you see actors who are just so good together, you like you're you're rooting for them despite the values or the narrative or what have you. And and I think as we're talking about intimacy, like there is an, a really deep, beautiful intimacy to Harvey Keitel's character, right? Mm. Like there is something very like it's that seductive kind of tortured, um, you know, like brooding character that like just wants a bit of love, right? And just mm. wants to be. And and I think there's something very seductive, and I think he does. I think I think he does a very good job of bringing all of that out, despite the fact that I'm like, oh, you're a fucking rapist, dude. Like you're like the two. It's hard yeah. to keep those two things in my my brain because it's done so well. And I think that that's the the danger and the power of media, right? I I uh, think that's oh. something that. Oh, I was gonna t- kind of take a tangent, so. No worries. Yeah, no. Final final thoughts. <laughs> well, I was going to uh, just thinking about the the way that an actor in their role can seduce the audience is kind of interesting. I've been struggling with that since watching the movie Red Rocket because mm. it's upsetting. I do not like this guy, but the actor is so charming and Okay. I feel like I just got sucked into his con watching that movie and I hated it. I hated the feeling of it. That's kind of like feeling like this movie where I'm like, is this sexy? I don't want it to be. Mm -hmm. I have so many fucking thoughts about this. I feel I'm like, we should talk about this in the bonus, but we should actually do an episode about this because I think there's something really complicated about like part of it is like the seduction, like the, for me, it's a boundary or whatever. I'm not even going to show you what I say, what I think about this. Cause we're going to fucking do an episode on this. You're going to come back. <laughs> to awesome. us with us. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. We will uh, take a quick break and we'll be back with some freakouts. We all need a little emotional support from time to time, but don't always have the resources or access to the support that understands us. I know it would have been life-changing if during the height of the online abuse against me to have anyone else who understood what I was going through. That's why me and my team built the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. We provide free, confidential, emotional support for people who make and play games. Because we are people who make and play games too, and we get it. You can learn more by texting INFO to 23368 from anywhere in the U.S. or visit gameshotline.org. That's info to 23368 or gameshotline.org. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Kat, what are you freaking out about? I am freaking out about the show, sort of. Have you heard of this show? I feel like it's gone completely under the radar. It's on HBO Max. Uh, It was a CBC show in Canada, and it is sort of (laughs) gently lovely in a way that reminded me of This Way Up, which Ebony turned me on to that show. Um, the best. In the kind of modern world of these 22-minute sitcoms that are about real-life things and not just like a group of friends at Central Perk, it is a story of people in Toronto – who are in the queer, trans, non-binary community, and who are navigating life. The main character, Subby, is a non-binary, trans-feminine 
person who's obviously um, struggling with their, I guess I shouldn't say obviously, but who's struggling with their family's uh, acceptance of their identity, but also struggling with fitting into Toronto's queer community. And the premise of the show is what happens when uh, Subby's a nanny for a family and is also very close with the mother of this family, who's one of the first people who's ever welcomed them and asked them their pronouns and hired them on to be a nanny when they might not have been hired by other families. This uh, mother of this family has a bicycle accident and goes into the hospital. So Subby has to decide whether to stay and help the kids and the hapless father or to go with their best friend to Berlin and have a queer adventure that's going to be, you know, the friend who's like, come on, this is going to be amazing. Berlin is so cool. We're going to have the time of our lives. What I really loved about this in the same way as This Way Up is this character is flawed, but brings so much love and value to the people in their life. And also that it kind of, I think that the modern perspective might be that it's only brave to go to Berlin and have the queer adventure when in a lot of instances, it's brave to stay and be a caregiver. And I think that that is something that is, you know, most, uh, this is a Rosalind Carter quote, but like there's four types of people um, in this world, people who have been a caregiver, are a caregiver, will be a caregiver or will need a caregiver. And so to see this in a show where it's uplifted, I think is really wonderful and that it's uplifted not as somebody who works at a nursing home, but somebody who works at a queer bar and coffee shop and goes to cool parties and also is taking care of people. So I found it really lovely. It's just a short season on HBO Max, and I hope more people watch it. Amazing. <clears throat> Never heard of it. That sounds great. Me either. Ebony, Harvey Keitel's Dingle Dangle, uh, as she is now known. As I, what, what do you mean now you, known? That's been my nickname forever <laughs> since this, that movie came out. Um, I am freaking out <clears throat> about inventing Anna <laughs> on Netflix about, you know, con artist Anna Delvey, nay Anna Sorkin. So, listen. I don't delve too deeply into the Shonda Rhimes of she's someone that I love in theory. Man, <laughs> I don't even I shouldn't even say this out loud because I'm probably like shooting myself in the foot in terms of future opportunities in Hollywood, but you know what? Too late. Whatever. I'm it's old. Fine. Anyway. Nope. It's a, we only have three listeners, remember? No one listens to it. No one listens to the podcast anyway. Whatever. So, anyways. But we um, love you. We love the three of you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> All three of you, our listeners. Um, but anyway, you know, enough people had watched the show and they were like, you're going to get into it. Just give it an episode. You're going to get into it. And I did for like three or four episodes. It is incredibly entertaining. It's very soapy. There are wonderful performances. I believe the, um, the woman who plays Anna Delvey is Julia Garner. Yeah. And her absolutely like pitch perfect bonkers portrayal of this woman is so entertaining to watch. I've only watched, I think, I think there's like nine episodes. I've only watched four or five of them. But I found my interest waning really quite abruptly when it became clear that the show is so enamored of the behavior 
that Anna, you know, um, Mm. behaves the way that she behaves, even though it's horrific, you know, even though she causes like real damage to people, because there's something just so fun and effervescent and fearless about her, right? And, you know, I don't want to get into like, you know, the morality of what she has done, you know, like it's, it's, you know, objectively, like she, she stole from people. Um, and I'm not crying no tears for the rich people that, <laughs> that she defrauded or the banks that she defrauded. But there's just something so weird about how certain kinds of crimes, when committed by certain kinds of people, are given this, this gloss mm. and this sheen, you know? And Anna is portrayed as like this incredibly like incredibly intelligent young woman, which I'm, I'm sure she is, you know, um, but almost like this criminal mastermind that is, you know, surrounded by people who just uh, don't appreciate her brilliance in a certain way. And if she were taken seriously as a young woman, she wouldn't be forced to, you know, um, you know, commit these sort of like heinous scams to execute her incredible visions. Well, what she wants to do is just do, like create a Soho house where she can hang out with the rich people. And, you know, like never pay for anything. Like she's she's not trying to like cure fucking cancer here and not being taken seriously. Yeah. She wants to be a rich layabout. Give me a fucking break. It feels a lot. It feels a lot. The energy between the journalist and Anna reminded me a lot of the the um um killing Eve energy, where mm-hmm. it's the the sort of the seduction of the villain and the sort of like the def- the defending of while also exposing of and the like the, mm-hmm. the tension. I mean, Killing Eve does it differently and in a different yeah. way, but I that kept coming up for me as I was watching the journalist become more and more seduced and like mm-hmm. crossing certain journalistic lines that were totally inappropriate. Like and 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 you're like and everything you know about this woman, why are you still? <laughs> like why and and that's part of the mythos of Anna of like she sucks everybody into her orbit right and that's how she had succeeded mm-hmm. one thing that really really bothered me on this show is um this might be a spoiler so come back in a minute um but the uh the 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 shitty vanity fair friend who is just like exploity and takes advantage of Anna um mm. she ends up footing a $60,000 bill. Um, she's just a fucking journal. She's not even a journalist. She's just like a fuck an assistant at Vanity Fair. And because she's framed as such a um, money grubbing ex like exploitative, you know, what, what have you person that's like taking advantage of this rich, rich woman. There is no sympathy for the fact that Anna f- made her foot this 60,000 bill and is like, bringing her around. And so I thought the framing of her, even though she is kind of an, like in some ways a despicable character, um, that there was no sympathy that everyone turned against her because she's like, what do I do with it? Like, of course she went and got a fucking book deal. Like uh, why that's it's capitalism. It's what Anna would have done. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's really that the, the way that the show deals with that particular aspect of it, I was like, what are you doing? Like this feels um, sup- like it, it, it just felt, uh, it, it felt, it just felt wrong to me. Yeah, and like no. the fact that Anna Delvey is riding the wave of her notoriety from this show to what is it like six hundred thousand, you know, Instagram followers, you know, and becoming the social media influencer worldwide that she always wanted to be, 
You know, there's something gross about that. The fact that we know what she has done. We know that she is completely unrepentant, that she would do this again in in a heartbeat if she could. And yet there's something about the spectacle that we are so drawn to and that we want to uphold, right? In the same way that like Netflix also has um, the tender swindler, right? Mm -hmm. And so this guy also you know, suddenly, you know, everywhere when he rightfully should be banished from like, you know, the public sphere, it, the the performing monkey that he represents for us is allowed to, you know, continue to like suck up all the oxygen in the room. It's fascinating, but it's also just horrifying, you know, that we get off on, on watching these things, knowing the how sed- harmful these people can be. It's just a seduction of spectacle that the press and um, media has perpetuates and like and and i don't mean that like well i mean i fucking watched all of inventing anna um i don't really like true crime stuff which is part of the energy of this show but we like socially get so seduced by these these stories and get like lost in them and these people who seem like bigger bigger than than life doing these things and and hurting others and like i i it's all, it all feels like spectacle, right? It all feels right, like Right, but seductive... then to take that further step and to be like, I'm going to see if Anna Delvey's on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to follow yeah, her. And, what and the fuck are you there, doing? I know. I, I feel like I can't quite access the words right now to describe the, that, like, that this almost like nothing matters energy of right. like, well, us following, like, isn't that interesting? Me following her and giving her attention doesn't, who the fuck am I? It doesn't matter, right? Um, yeah, I I can't articulate my point, but I hear I totally understand what you're saying. Well, I think there's also something that uh, people love about like a pretty white girl who pulls what? pulls one over. You know, like Elizabeth Holmes and uh, Anna Delvey are in a different in a different world than the women of Hustlers who also pulled a scam, but are not like kind of given the same sort of adoration. Um, or even thinking about, remember that movie, Better Luck Tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the movie I'm thinking of. There was a movie of like about <laughs> a scam. A scam, and when they made the movie, they made everyone in it white, even though that wasn't how the story was. Yeah, went. yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, it was the one like, about like the casino and the county yeah, cards and stuff. Yeah, because it's like audiences want to see that. That's fun. And if it's not white people, it's like, oh, this is, this is crime. This mm-hmm. is crime for us to feel uncomfortable about yeah it's the ocean's yeah. 11 right yeah. we love a good heist you know <laughs> heist movie yeah. um and the, you do have to you know make the the victim in it you know ludicrous to some extent you have to make them you know evil or small or petty or whatever to justify the way that we feel um uh, about supporting the you know in quotes villain of the piece but whatever so am i gonna finish watching the rest of inventing anna I don't know, maybe, whatever, probably not. I think I've gotten everything out of it that I need to. But Julia Garner is fucking hilarious as Anna, I will say. Like, just very entertaining to watch. And I also love um, Vivian Kent's, um, like, journalist cohort. Like, the older, what do they call it? Oh, my God. All of those people, you know, are great. Yeah, Yeah, no, that, that part was great. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Kat, where can people find you? You got anything to plug? I 
am Twitter con artist yeah uh, stories uh you can follow you can follow uh detailed accounts of my crimes um <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter at cat underscore ex underscore machina and I host the Beverly Hills 90210 podcast the blaze which is at 90210 blaze and I guess well, sure your three listeners can be can overlap with my three listeners and get excited that uh, we are coming back soon after a a uh, pandemic hiatus that was like, let's pick this up again in a few weeks when the pandemic's over. And here we are now. So um, we have new episodes on the horizon uh, for people who are ready for our takes on a show from 1995. I got to be a guest on The Blaze and it was so fun. Also, there were snacks. So maybe (laughs) Anita, back when we were doing things in person, Maybe that was one of the reasons why it was hard to get guests is because they knew that we weren't going to feed them. <laughs> and between you and me, Ebony, we should have been easily able to feed people. I know, but like it right? literally never occurred to me to be like to put out some charcuterie. <laughs> but before we wrap up, I would just like to say that um, this summer, last summer, when I threw a Ted Lasso um, viewing party for season two, Ebony fucking bailed as usual because Ebony literally <laughs> I, never leaves her house. Don't leave the house and also uh, had never seen the show. But- Ebony sent Kat, which is how I met you, and um, Kat made these adorable little crocheted biscuits in a little pink box, and it was the the cutest fucking thing ever, and so I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you. um, I've since watched Ted Lasso, so we can talk about it now, Anita. I can't. We can't. I can't. I mean, I don't. I can't talk about Ted Lasso. It's too late. Okay. (laughs) Well, no. No, I just, it like. You talked about it too much. You're done for me. It's it's hard. Anyways, that's a bonus. That's a bonus conversation. (laughs) That's a bonus. Um, next week we are continuing our Women's History Month female directors thing that I don't think we said that we're actually doing, but we did. (laughs) Surprise! Um, And we're gonna talk about Jennifer's body, which I've never seen before. With Jennifer body super fan Jordan Cruciola. Um, it's really good. We already recorded it. I highly recommend tuning into that because <laughs> that's a fucking movie. All right. Whoa. Talk about feeding our people. Show <laughs> yeah, true. Um, our show is engineered by Rob Para. Carrie Simpson provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Thanks, y'all. Bye.